Mac Power Users, Episode 157, Security Problems and Solutions. Hey, everybody. It's David Sparks, along with Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. I like how we're getting emails now to Katie Floyd and David. Yes, we are. And uh, I'm... I'm okay with that, you know, because it doesn't, doesn't make you angry or anything. It, it does not make me angry. Well, that's no. good. So that's good. That's a relief. Uh, but it just rolls off the tongue. Katie Floyd can't help myself. That's fine. Cause I'm, you know, Katie Floyd on Twitter and Katie Floyd.me. And I guess it works. We'll go with it. So we've done some shows on security before, but we always get these emails with like little problems that people have and saying, how do I deal with it? Or maybe there's some problems that you have and you aren't even aware you have them. And uh, since we're nerds, we've been kind of dealing with them on our own. And we thought we'd do a show where we talked about some of the most common security issues we bump into and how we work around them. And uh, I think it'll be a fun show. What yeah, do you think? I think so, too. And we've put together a, kind of a lot of the security-related feedback that we've gotten from people through Twitter, through email. And we've we've tried to put those all together into kind of questions and and try to answer those in those shows. And we did a whole show on security recently in show 148, and we'll try not to double cover a lot of those topics. There may be a little bit of overlap, but we got a lot of feedback generated from those shows where people said, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, maybe you didn't cover this. And we're always going to get, you know, well, you didn't cover this, or you didn't cover this in depth enough, or this doesn't quite cover my problem. So I guess this show, you know, we're about 10 shows later is is our attempt to maybe fill some of those holes and I'm sure we'll create entirely new ones. Well, I thought in show 148, we covered kind of a lot of the abstract of security, you know, what it is, how it works. Um, and I thought this show, I would like to kind of be boots on the ground. How, you know, how do you deal with some of the most common problems that arise from all that abstraction? So this will be a good show. You can listen to them both. Don't feel like you have to run away. If you already listen to 148, you are going to learn new stuff here. Um, um, can I ask an unrelated question before we yeah, get started? Go, sure, go ahead. So um, silver, gold, or black? Oh, I, I bought the white iPhone 5S. Okay. My, Mrs. Max Sparky wanted the gold. She said that there was no question that she is uh, wants the gold phone. So I said, well, we're not going to have two of the same color. And frankly, I don't think I'd be carrying around a gold phone anyway. But um, <laughs> I went the, to the um, I went to the gym yesterday and I was yeah. wearing a, a gray T-shirt. And um, my trainer said to me, she said, gray or white? And I said, I didn't get one. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you always wear a gray or a white T-shirt. And I said, <laughs> never mind. Well, that just shows, you know, our little world, right? I, I've always got the black phones. I got the white 3GS. I remember when I, I bought it on Twitter, everybody was making fun of me for buying the white one. And uh, so I thought I would just stick with black. But the the black 5 actually has some scratches and scuffs on it. I think the amount of that anodization, that black anodization, it shows scratches very well. And I think they fixed that with the new one. In fact, since I bought it, I, I pre-ordered mine at, at midnight, so I'm not going to get it for a week or two. And uh, since I I ordered it, I've been hearing people saying, oh, man, the, the new gray, space gray looks a lot like the original iPhone. And to me, the original iPhone was like, I think, my favorite phone in terms of design. I just really liked that design. Uh, but the uh, but I'm, I went with white, you know, so here I am. I, I think I'll like it. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get too hung up on it. 
I did not buy one this year. I've got the iPhone 5 that I picked up when I, um, uh, you know, when it was brand new because I, uh, and I switched to Verizon at that time because AT&T has really bad coverage in my area. So I finally switched over to Verizon. And the thing that surprised me a little bit is I ran the math and it was going to cost me upwards of $900 to get the iPhone 5S on Verizon. And I just, you know, I know that I could trade mine in and get, you know, three or three or 400 bucks of that back. But I, you know, I just, for 900 bucks was a really tough pill for me to swallow. Boy, considering That's, that's kind of ridiculous. I'm, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Because I, I, from what I've heard from my friends who are on AT&T in the United States, for them to, and I was looking at the 32 gig model, for them to buy a 32 gig model off contract, they were looking at, you know, four or 500 bucks because I think they were getting some kind of consideration for the fact that they were already a year into their contract. But for Verizon, you don't get any consideration for the fact that you've already, you know, paid off a year of your subsidy. It's, you know, $750 to buy the phone. Um, and then you've got tax and then, you know, 35 or $30 of an activation fee, and that gets you up close to 800 bucks. And then by the time you throw Apple Care on top, it's it's 900 bucks. So I was just like, mm, no, I'm I'm really happy with my five and I'm just going to stick with it for a year. And it's kind of like a whole new phone uh, with iOS 7. And I, and I, I do want to say we've got a couple of iOS 7 kind of related shows coming coming down the pipeline. They're on the list. I um. I can't get over, you know, the $35 activation fee. It's like they just like find ways to like mess with you. Well, I, you know, this is a whole rant for another show, but I'm, I'm over this whole subsidy thing in the U.S. I mean, I understand the concept of it. I get, you know, that if you're going to buy a phone for $300, but it really costs more like six or $700 that you pay it off over the course of this two or three year contract, depending on your provider. But then shouldn't realistically, if I don't get a new phone every two years, shouldn't my bill go down? Oh, or- it's even worse than that. I Because we have a family plan. And, and see, the reason I can get a new phone every year is because I'm paying for four iPhones. You know, everybody in my house has one. So there's always an upgrade available. But the um, – and dad always gets the new one. That's yeah. kind of – uh, it sounds like Mrs. Max Sparky's getting up there too. Well, she hers is old. So she was due for an upgrade on her account. So the kids get the – the kids get last year's model and it, it cycles down. So there's two kids. So one's going to have a two year old, one's going to have a one year old phone and I'll get the new one. But Daisy's phone was ready for uh, a new one. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I got sidetracked. The, the point though, with this whole uh, subsidy thing is it's all kind of a farce anyway. Like um, we're considering adding another person to our family plan, uh, a relative of mine who, you know, needs some help and we're going to put her on our family plan. So we have an extra phone we're going to give her if this all plays out and it won't cost that much because I'm on a family plan anyway, but we're bringing her into the contract. So she could get a new phone with the, with the subsidy, but we're just going to have her take uh, one of the old iPhones and we're still paying the same amount. It doesn't matter. So if you go and sign up with one of these plans and you don't get a new phone, you just take an existing phone, you're still paying the same amount for the data and everything. So it's kind of a joke. I, you know, I, I just don't think the way it's it's a one sided street or it's a one way street. Yeah. I think we've gone too far on the subject. Let's yeah, get back to the yeah. topic. So we were we were talking about security, I think. Yeah, we were. <laughs> okay. Well, well, so let's let's yeah. solve some problems. We we got on onto this topic because the the first problem that comes up a lot about is uh, people talk to us about how can they be more secure on their iOS devices, and. The um, Apple even addressed this when they introduced the iPhone 5S, and the statistic that they gave was astonishing to me. 
And, but, but I guess not, you know, maybe not when I think about it, just be, if you get outside of our little Mac power user sphere, you know, uh, Tim Cook got, I think it was Tim Cook who was on stage, said that 50% of people do not use a passcode lock on their iPhones. And that is terrifying, absolutely terrifying when you think about all of the information that is on the iPhone, all of the data that people could have access to. I mean, your life is on these devices, just the information that's accept- – now, granted, probably most thieves who get your iPhone are just looking to make a quick sale, and hopefully it's going to get wiped at some point. But you've got information in your email. You've got all of your contacts information. I mean, it is just ripe for identity theft or worse. So – um People are complaining, though, that the the iPhone iPad passcode lock is really a pain, and that's why they just don't turn it on. Yeah, it's so, four digits. It, well, it's four digits. Well, or it could be more. You could set it to be more secure. Well, we we have uh, guests on our show, people who are very savvy who have admitted to not using one. So I don't think that number is out of line. I think a lot of people just don't want to bother with it. I, with my kids, I was very, um, you know, I emphasize, look, you know, this is a privilege. You're getting this on. You have to keep it locked. And I, it's not so much that I'm worried about their data so much as I want them to build that habit. And maybe that habit isn't going to matter in a few years because now we have this touch ID, uh, which is really great with a new iPhone where you just put your thumb on it and it unlocks it for you. But since most of us don't have touch ID and a lot of us still have iPads that don't even have that as an option, at least now, um, passcodes are a big deal. And I'm not going to preach about it because we've done it on too many shows, but I would like to talk about ways to make it easier to use a passcode. And one of the things I do is I set a delay on it. So, you know, one of the gripes is, hey, I'm using my phone. I'm doing something. I turn it off for a minute to get a drink of water and I come back and I have to put the passcode in again. And that's such a pain. I'm just going to turn it off. Well, you can set a delay on the passcode lock in the setting. So once you set up your passcode and I'm going to just open my iPad so I don't screw this up. Yeah, it's it's in in, uh, settings general. Yeah, it's in general and it's in uh, passcode lock. And then you're going to have to type in my passcode to get to that. And then you can say require passcode, and it can be after one minute, five minute, 15 minutes, or an hour. And, you know, if, if you've got a device that never leaves your house, I would put it at one hour. It's okay. But mm-hmm. if you're out on the road, then it's going to be something shorter than that. But I do use that. I use a five-minute delay on mine. And so I guess if somebody gets my phone, within five minutes, they're going to have access to it. But that's, I guess, where I find it, the convenience versus security. That's the number that works for me. If I was traveling, I'd put it to one minute yeah. or maybe I'd even just turn it off. And while you're in that setting, there are a couple of other things that I want to point out since this is a security show that, that you can go in, in detail and change. First off, you can go in and you can change it from a simple passcode to a more complex passcode. Now, a simple passcode is a four-digit number. If you work for an institution that requires you to have a more complex passcode or you just want a more complex passcode, you can turn simple passcode off and you can put in a word or a phrase or whatever you want. Obviously, the longer it is, the bit more hassle it is. But we did have a Mac Power user listener write in with a tip about how you can still keep a numeric passcode, but yet have it be more than four digits long. So if you turn off simple passcode, but put in a numeric passcode, it's still going to show you just the um, the number buttons. Yeah, which is great. So that that's an easy way to um, get a, a more complex passcode, but not have to deal with the whole keyboard. Right. Even just adding one digit might, you know, make it a lot better. Exactly. 
Um, and then you can do things like disable access to Siri or in the um, you can turn on the erase data feature where if you have more than 10 failed passcode attempts, it will erase your data. That's a little dangerous if you've got kids or people who might just be randomly typing in your, your passcode when your phone's not really lost or stolen. Um, but the other thing you may want to consider doing, which I have done, um, is I turned off Control Center with um, uh, on my on my lock screen just because it kind of gives you access to a lot of stuff that I, I wasn't really sure I wanted access to on my lock screen, um, including like the ability to put the phone in airplane mode, which would turn off Find My iPhone. Granted, you can turn off Find My iPhone just by turning off the iPhone. Um, but the the inconvenience with that is you don't have access to the to the controls for music. But if you're playing music or if you're in downcast or something like that, those will show up on the lock screen anyway. I guess the big thing you miss is the airplay button. Well, um, you know, getting back to the point, if you want to have a passcode and the fact that you have to type it in every time you turn the phone on, uh, this is a really good way to solve that problem. And you're a lot better off than having no passcode at all. Um, they also have that feature in one password. Do you use that, Katie? I do. I do use that password. So you can have a, a secondary. Well, first in one password, you can delay on your iOS device or or Mac, how long it is before the app locks itself back up. Because, you know, presumably you've got a really good password to get in one password. It takes a little while to, pa- to type it in. So you can set a delay, but also on the iOS version, they have a feature where you can put a much simpler passcode. So once you unlocked it once, then you can have just a four-digit number to get in later. Yeah, they call it a, a quick unlock code. And my recommendation is obviously you set that quick unlock code to be something different from your iPhone passcode. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah, if someone gets into your iPhone, (laughs) chances are that's going to be the first thing they try. Um, And then they've got, you know, how long do you – you can also um, change the interval once you turn on that quick unlock code for how long it actually requires you to to go back and enter your full master password. So whether that's one minute, two minutes, four minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, you know, or or whatever you want to do. The the point of all this is it's not binary. It's not – um, you either have a passcode or don't have a passcode. There are settings that allow you to have a passcode, but not as often as you would think. So if you're having trouble with that, go look at those settings and please add a passcode in and you know just figure out a system that works for you. That's how I solve that problem. What if I've got data on my iPhone that I, I if someone gets in or if I'm just flat out not going to use a passcode, what can I do to keep additional layers of security on data in my iPhone? Well, you, you want to have a place that has an additional layer of security. So someplace where you've got a separate password to get in. Yeah. Um, one password, I, you had to keep mentioning it, obviously, with the secure notes features and things like that. You can do that in there. Um, but there yeah. are lots of other dot, um, applications also have the ability to turn on um, a passcode, which I've done. Um, Evernote, if you're a premium subscriber to Evernote, gives you the ability to require a passcode to get access to any of the information in the Evernote app, which I am and I do because I keep all of my statements in Evernote. Uh, and Dropbox also gives you that option too. And David, I know you keep all of your scans in Dropbox, so I'm hoping you've got that feature turned on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and don't, you know, we're, we'll talk probably more later about the secure notes and 1Password, but man, it's a godsend on the iOS stuff because any kind of data you have on your iPhone if someone gets to that first layer, they you know it's it's open. Everything is open for them. So, it, it, adding a secure note to Dropbox with things like social security numbers and 
medical information and things that you really don't want other people seeing um, is a just a great way to go. Okay. All right. So I've lost my iPhone, but are there what are the what are the things that I can do to increase my likelihood of actually getting it back? Well, the first thing you can do is is turn on Find My iPhone. And I think now more than ever, you should do that. Uh, they added a feature in iOS 7 called Activation Lock, which is great. Which means that if the bad guy gets your iPhone and tries to reset it, he's going to need your Apple ID and password. Not your phone's pa- passcode, but the actual Apple ID and password for your iCloud account to make it work. And uh, so Apple has made it possible to essentially brick a phone. Uh, that goes out into the world. I, I actually ran into this today. I was um, I installed iOS seven on my iPad, but it was it's a third generation iPad, so it's not the latest and greatest. And it was running a little crashy. And I, I've heard some complaints about that on iPads, especially older iPads, um, that iOS seven was perhaps not as stable on the iPad. So I decided. You know, the iPad's pretty easy for me to restore because I don't keep a lot of media on it. I think I'm just going to go ahead and over the weekend restore my iPad and put fresh, clean copies of everything in it. So I plugged my iPad into iTunes to go ahead and restore it, and it wouldn't let me. It said, you've got to disable Find My iPhone first. I was yeah. like, what the heck? And then I thought about it. Oh, yeah, it's it's activation lock. So I actually had to go into my iPad, you know, enter my, you know, passcode to get into my iPad and then disable find my iPhone, which required my much longer Apple ID password. And then only then was I able to restore my iPhone. And then a couple of things happened, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, First, Apple sent me an email saying, hey, find my iPad has been disabled on your iPad, just making you aware of this. I mean, I guess there's not much you can do about it at that point, but at least you know. Um, and then when I restored from, I restored from a backup and we'll see if, if everything goes well, but at least for when I restored from the backup, I, I thought, oh yeah, I need to go back in and, and re-enable find my iPhone or find my iPad in this case. Uh, and it was already re-enabled. I think it's, it's really nice. And find my iPhone has, has iterated over the years. And I think this is, you know, the final, hopefully, you know, one of the best additions to it because the activation lock is going to make your, your iDevice is a much less attractive target to thieves. Well, so long as thieves know about it. So well, they please they, go go tell all of your friends who are thieves or no thieves or hang out. No, I'm just kidding. Well, the word will get around, right? I mean, yeah, if they steal a phone and they can't sell it because it won't work, it won't take long for that to happen. Yeah. Just like I think there was a there was a grace period where find my iPhone was out and the thieves weren't aware of it. And then they'd steal a phone and then the police would show up knocking on their door the next morning because they didn't realize they needed to reset the phone to turn that off. Well, now there's going to be thieves, <laughs> you know, who, uh, who steal a phone and they're unable to sell it because of this. So I, I think it's a great thing. I hope that all um, mobile operators do this so we can be less of mugging targets. I mean, these things are really expensive. Like you said, it's a $900 phone. That you're talking about, at least for you, right? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, some other things to do about your lost devices, and this one is really, you know, retro, but I just have a little label maker and I make a, a label that says David Sparks with my cell phone number and I stick it on the bottom of my Mac. Yeah, I, I would not put your cell phone number on your cell phone though. Just why? Because, oh, on the cell phone. Yes, yeah, okay, yes. sorry. Yes. Yes. Well, I, uh, mainly I put it on my Mac. I, I can't handle having one of those stickers on my iPhone. Oh, and I have while a, I, go ahead. I have, I have a solution for that later, though. Well, I, I know you have a digital solution, but, you know, there's something to be said for a sticker because people don't have to turn it on. They they literally turn it over 
and they see a name and a phone number and they can call it, uh, which is great because some people really don't think about that. Now on the Mac, in the security preference pane, I call it a message in a bottle. Uh, I forget what the exact name they have for it. But you can put up a thing in your Mac as well that, that places a message on the screen as soon as you boot it up. So if you leave your Mac somewhere and the sticker is not on the bottom and someone just turns it on, they're going to see your name and a phone number right there so they can call you. And that's assuming somebody honest finds it. And I think there's more honest people than dishonest people out there. Yeah. Uh, my solution for that, I, I like your sticker idea for a Mac. I kind of agree. I don't know that I want to put a sticker on my iPhone. Maybe maybe put like a sticker on a case or something like that. But I don't know that I, I don't keep my iPhone on a case. So that wouldn't work real well for me. Um, but what I did is I edited the um, the wallpaper that I have on my lock screen. And it had been something that I had been meaning to do for a while. But then I found an app that made it very easy to do. And that app is called Contact Lock Screen. It is free in the – or contact lock, I think now, is, is what it's just simply called. It's um, free on iTunes or in the App Store for the basic version, and it uses one of the default wallpapers. I think it's kind of like you know the, the Starry Nebula wallpaper by default for iOS 7. And it will appropriately position a line of text so that it doesn't get in the way of the clock or the slide to unlock, where you can just put a couple lines of text. So mine just says Katie Floyd's iPhone – doesn't say Katie's iPhone. It says Katie Floyd's iPhone. I know that Excellent. makes you happy. I'm glad. I'm glad of that. Um, and then it has a phone number. It actually has my Google Voice phone number so that they can get me. Um, and it has an email address so so they can reach me. And um, and then you save that to your camera roll. And then, of course, you can use it as your wallpaper. And then for a $0.99 cent in-app purchase, it will allow you to use your own photos. Yeah. So. nice. That's a nice app. And you could just edit a photo and stick it in there. It's, I mean, you could use Pixelmator to do that too. You could, but for ninety nine cents, I mean, I can do this. Yeah. And yeah, I, I just, I'd always meant to do it in Pixelmator, and and I know that I could, but then it was like, oh, what are the dimensions? What do I need to crop it to? Where do I need to put this? And this was like, you know, brain dead easy. Yeah. So I think those are really good ideas to help avoid losing your phone. Yeah. Um. What about secure data on iOS devices? I guess we've kind of talked about that. I, I do mainly in one password. Yeah, I, I keep a lot of secure notes in one password. I keep obviously all of my logins in one password, but then I keep pretty much everything else goes in Evernote, which I access um, with a passcode lock. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so we have a series of questions and problems we'd like to solve with respect to confidential information. I think this is a good place to, to do that. But first, let's talk about our sponsor for today's show. That's a a new, I guess appropriately, it's the new 1Password application. Yeah, you know, 1Password is going to version 4, and it likely is out by the time we're pre-recording this episode. So it is likely out by the time that you're hearing this episode. But if not, it will be out very soon. And we have been given special permission to talk to you about it. So 1Password 4 is a complete redesign. And David and I have been using it for a couple of weeks now. And I just love it. Um, it takes a lot of the design cues and a lot of the features from 1Password 4 for iOS and incorporates them into 1Password 4 for the Mac. Um, and it just keeps building on them. But I want to talk in particular, especially as it pertains to security, um, kind of to one of the features that I have found most beneficial with 1Password 4. And that is it now gives you the ability to add iCloud Sync. Now, the great thing about 1Password is that you can keep your data 
everywhere. You know, they used to have, and they still do have, let's make it clear that nothing is going away. You can sync your data via Dropbox, which means you could have access to it on your Mac, on your iPhone, on your Windows machine, because there's a version of 1Password for Windows, um, on your Android device, because there's a version of 1Password for Android. And that Dropbox sync is wonderful because Dropbox is pretty much everywhere and you can get access to your data everywhere. Yeah, multi-platform. That's right. the multi-platform solution. But as a as a Mac user... I like I like iCloud. And why do I like iCloud is because it's it's one less password for me to keep outside of the one password realm. So so here's the scenario that that you run up against is you know you you drop your iPhone, you're on vacation, something happens and and your iPhone is is totally dead. And you need to go restore your iPhone. So there's this great thing now where you can go pick up a new iPhone at an Apple store, go buy one wherever. And if you're backing up all of your information to iCloud, which you should be, uh, you can restore all of your data from iCloud. I've used it before. It works great. Now, unfortunately, at that point, if you're out and about, you don't have access, unless you've got it on your keychain like I do, um, to your 1Password information. So I've got, you know, my, my iCloud ID, my Apple ID is one of those few bits of information that I've memorized. I've got a good long password. I keep it outside of 1Password. But now I can totally set up my iPhone by entering my Apple ID, by using my Apple ID password, get all of my apps, all of my data back, and I can get all of my 1Password data back because I'm going to enter my 1Password password, set it up to sync via iCloud, and pull all that data back in, and boom, I'm back in business. Now I've got my Dropbox password that's super secure that I have no idea what it is stored in 1Password. It, it's, I, I am really thrilled about the iCloud sync, and I hope I explained that well. No, I think you did. And, you know, 1Password 4 just really looks great. It, it doesn't look like an iOS app, even though it pulls a lot of design cue from what they did to 1Password 4 on iOS. It looks like a Mac app, um, but I, I'm very happy with the redesign. I think it's something worth checking out. We're going to talk about it more during the show, but uh, go over and get yourself a, a copy. Now, what is the deal with buying 1Password 4? If you bought version 3 from the Mac App Store, well, did I interrupt you, Dick? No, I thought you were asking me, so I was going to tell you what the deal was, but it well, sounds like I'll you've got you, it. I, t- I, I benefited because I bought it as soon as it went on the Mac App Store. I bought because it made sense for me because I've got, I'm trying to get my whole family to use it. So I bought it through the Mac App Store. We all share that. Uh, iTunes account. So we've got it installed on four computers. Made a lot of sense. Well, it made even more sense now because since I bought it from the Mac App Store version three, it's free. The up, the update is free for me. Yay. Yeah. Right. And if you bought directly from agilebits.com or from onepassword.com, if you purchased after January 1 of 2013, it is also a free upgrade for you. So uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about 1Password later in the show, and David can share with you some of his favorite features of version 4 because there are a lot more. Um, And thanks to 1Password for uh, sponsoring exclusively this episode of Mac Power Users. Okay, so we left off where we were going to talk about sharing confidential information. And this is a a common problem I have. I just had it happen this week. Daisy uh, texted me. She said, what's the password for our cable company online account. So she texted me and I'm like, oh, okay, what do I do? So I, I could text her back the login and password, um, which would be pretty insecure because it's a text message and it's got the login and the password and it identifies the company that I'm using it for. And then I guess somebody could get in and order me, you know, HBO or something, but you know. that, that would be a travesty, but okay. But in, in general, the idea is, 
is not a good one. You know, when you want a password, sending those bits digitally, email is another way a lot of people will request password information. And you send an email. And and this is one of my big problems with email. We're going to talk about this later as another problem that we try to solve, is that email is full of passwords and user IDs. I mean, they send them to you from the companies themselves, and, and you end up sending them to friends when they ask for it. Try to minimize that as much as possible. So in my case... I called her, I picked up the phone, I called her and said, okay, here's the, you know, login ID and here's the password. And that way it was not digitally captured, I guess. <laughs> well, reading the news, it might have been, <laughs> but yeah. much fewer people uh, have access to those phone calls. Well, so, but I think one of the more important things is you really just want to keep the password separate from the, what it's the password for. So yeah. if she if she had called you and said, hey, can you send me the uh, the login for the cable company and you had texted it to her, I think that probably would have been fine. And knowing what that password probably looked at may look like maybe maybe more appropriate than saying H, capital H, Q, lowercase w. No. <laughs> well, actually, it's this this password was so old. I mean, this password is like 10 years old. I am. Um, it wasn't a good password. So after I gave it to her, I said, okay, that's on my list. I'm going to go fix that password. But Damn. you're right. If she had, if she had called me or if she had, if we had no communication documenting what it was for, I could have just sent her a text of this long, crazy password and someone who intercepted that wouldn't really know where it belonged. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean to ramble on cause this is not an ad spot, but that is one of the thing that one password for does introduce and you could have done it just with iOS cause they introduced it with the iOS app. And I know she has one password for on her iPhone is you could have the uh, one password for has a password sharing feature. Yeah. So yeah. head smack could have done it that way. Yep. You know, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Yeah. Um, another way is, um, how do you securely share files with people? And one that I'm really interested in, but haven't had a lot of time to play with because I was not on the beta, but I know you were, uh, is, is airdrop. I can see myself, uh, using airdrop quite a bit, at least, you know, kind of in the family setting. In fact, I turned it on, um, you know, for, um, just my contacts. I know you can turn it on for, for contacts or for everyone in the world or for only specific subsets of people? Well, there's two airdrops right now. So That's true. We should, we should the, clarify. The, yeah, there's the airdrop on the Mac, which shares files between Macs. Um, and then there's airdrop on the iPhone, and never the two shall meet, at least not, not yet. Um, I, I so, think they will, though. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, they, they've got the same name, so at some point they've got to hook them up together. But AirDrop on iOS is only working on iPhone 5, and I don't know if it, I would assume it's working on iPad 3, but iPad 4. So if in my house, I've got the only iPhone 5, so I haven't really tested it much. But that is a, a nice feature where you can share a file. The bigger problem I have is uh, relating to both the day job and personally, when someone says, hey, send me a file. You know, what if the accountant says, well, you send me that that form that you got from, you know, you know, whoever, PayPal. And so I want to send it to her. But if I send it to her as a PDF attachment, then there's a PDF file that's got my social security number on it. It's got something about my own money on it. And it's going out into the world. First of all, it's attached to an email that's in transit. 
which we are again, I, I guess we really shouldn't get into this whole thing going on right now with the NSA and everybody else. But the fact is, it, it appears governments are reading a lot more of our email than we thought, or at least have access to it. Somebody's um, got a lot of time on their hands. What are you talking about? My email's really boring. Yeah, I know. But either way, I, I don't yeah, even want to go I there. Yeah. I, I, okay, I'll say one thing. If <laughs> If someone told my father that, they are taking every letter you write, making a copy of it, and then sending it along. They're not going to read it, but they're just going to have a copy of it. He would have marched on Washington. Yeah. And nobody even seems to care now, but that's it. All right. So where was I? I was talking about sending this attachment to my yes. account. Yes. How do you, how do you, how do you securely share files? All right. With so other if, I, if I put this PDF in the uh, attachment and send it to her, uh, it's really in the clear for people that are both have access to it in transit and her. And she's a really nice lady, but I don't know that she has really secure email procedures. And and this email is going to sit in her archive maybe for the next 30 years with my social security number and all this other stuff on it. So if someone gets access to her email, then they have access to something that's pretty important to me. So how do I solve that problem? One way to do it would be to encrypt the PDF itself. You can do that on the Mac uh, right from preview. When you save it, it says uh, PDF security, and you can type in a little password. And I could text her or I could call her or do something to give her the password for that uh, that PDF in a separate chain, which is definitely more secure. So if someone gets access to that email, they don't have the password, they're going to have a hard time getting into that PDF. Um, one question I have about that is how long is that password really going to work um, as computers get smarter about it, you know, unencrypting this stuff. Uh, but that's, that's definitely one solution. Another one is not to attach the document as a PDF attachment. Maybe just give her the key information out of that without giving her my social security number. You know? well, which she should already have if she's your accountant. It, exactly. Um, another solution is to have a remote access of that file with a link in the email. So I can put, for instance, in Dropbox, I have a folder called sharing. And this is one I wanted to talk about for a little bit. So I have this folder where I put documents into this file. And and I'll send somebody a link that says, here, you can download it right here. And at the same time, I have a Hazel rule. Um, in fact, I really have two sharing folders. I have one that's monitored by Hazel and one that's not. And the one that's monitored by Hazel looks for anything I put in there that's over, I think, two weeks old, and it destroys it, you know. So it's got like a time bomb attached to the file. So if she downloads it, it'll be fine, and then it's going to be – then in two weeks, the file will get deleted. So if somebody else gets access to the email and they click the link, there'll be nothing there. With me so far? Yep. So basically what you do is you create a Hazel rule that monitors that folder that says if date – added is not in the last two weeks, then yeah. move to trash. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I got that from Merlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he also, well, I'm not sure if, if I got that from him. I got the file name. He also had a thing where he, he makes a very strange file name for it. Yeah. I guess that's what he added to it. I, I forget, you know, it was one of the old workshop flow shows we did with Merlin, but I, I still do that all the time. Um, now you could do both of these things. So you could encrypt the image with something like um, uh, preview or even PGP, if you wanted to get go crazy and you could share it via the Hazel self-destructive rule. And that's even more secure. So now not only is the file not going to be available on the internet, uh, the copy that the accountant may keep on her computer is also going to have its own encryption applied to it. 
Yeah. And then obviously you don't want to send the encryption key with the document. So what I try to do, if possible, is make the encryption key something that the other person should already know about me. Yeah. So you could put it in there that the encryption key is the, well, I get, you know. The last seven digits of this account number that you should already know. Yeah, you could say that. Or, Or we even have, I've got some people that we have a standing encryption key between us. And it's some phrase, you know, between us that we both remember. And it's usually something kind of silly, but it's easy to remember. And my accountant and I have have that phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do and, too with my accountant. In fact, they set one up with me when I opened the account, which makes sense. Yeah. So there is a way to securely share this stuff. Just attaching it to an email is the wrong way to do it, though. So next time you catch yourself attaching something to an email that's got social security numbers in it and other things you don't want on the front page of the New York Times, uh, use one of those tricks. Uh, The next area I want to talk about is email and confidentiality, because we talked, (laughs) this is just a wild for um, us to, to screw up and get lots of email, but we tried to cover it. Uh, a bit on show 148, and we talked about uh, PGP encryption. And then we had a lot of people say, why didn't you talk about S-MIME? So we touched on it in show 148, and I I wanted to touch on it a little bit again because I kind of felt like we only told part of the story. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the first thing I want to do is I want to make the distinction between signing an email versus encrypting an email, and this is going to be a bit of a refresher. But so you can go out and regardless of how you do it, you can get one of these keys and just you having a key, you can sign an email to somebody. So if I have a key and David doesn't have a key, I can share my key with David depending on these methods. And if David has my shared key or he has my information, if I send David an email and I and, and he is not signing with me, but if I'm just if I'm secure and I'm sending it to him, then it's going to be signed but it's not going to be necessarily encrypted. So what what benefit that gives David is David knows, yes, the email came from me, and yes, the email is intact and hasn't been altered, but he doesn't necessarily know that it hasn't been intercepted or read in between. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. The benefit of encryption, but it's a little more difficult, is that it requires both parties on both sides of the communication to complete that transaction by both having the same type of encryption and both in place. So in order for our method to be truly secure, David's got to have also encryption where we've exchanged keys. So only one way you can sign it, and it gives you some idea that the the message is at least from the person you think it is, and it hasn't been altered. But both ways, you know that that message is secure. And we talked about uh, PGP, and after we talked about that, Don McAllister released an excellent screencast for free, um, about the PGP system and how it works and shared keys and public keys and private keys and all of that. And I'm just going to reference, pe- uh, send people over to that screencast because he actually shows you how you can go and set one up. And Don also covered GPG in that screencast as well. Yes. Yes, he did. Which, in my experience, is easier to apply because it, it locks right into mail. But, you know, Katie, let's, you know, game back to kind of the practical theme of this episode. Do you encrypt email? Yes, and oh. I'm I'm using S-MIME, and, okay. and the reason that I'm using that is it's a little bit easier, I think, because it's built into the operating system. You get a key and sign it, and, and you're done. You know, you go get a key from VeriSign or Komodo or one of these other services that will sell you a key, 
and you're done. And then your email system keeps track of a key. And the only thing that I need to do to share my key with you, David, is at some point send you an email. And I bet if you go look in your keychain right now, you'll see that you have my key. Now, did you get yours from VeriSign? I don't remember where I got mine from. I'll have to look. I think so. I think I got mine from VeriSign. I'll have to look. Maybe I got it from. I I don't use encryption nearly as much as you'd think I would. I I don't use it. I don't use it as much as you think I would, but, but at least every email that I send you now is signed. Yeah. Um, And I went into a, I mean, you could go into a, 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 we could do a whole episode on the differences between PGP, GPG, and SMIME. And and, and sparing you that, I will tell you that I covered this topic at length with with Bart Bouchard a couple of weeks ago when I sat in on Allison's uh, Nocilla cast. So if you're interested in that conversation and what are the differences and why you may want to prefer one over the other, because I was very confused about it, candidly. Um, you can go check that out. But ultimately, after figuring it out, I chose to use S-Mime. And now I am signing almost all of my emails. And then if they need to be, I will I will go ahead and encrypt them. And so you can yeah. buy a key from VeriSign. Buying the key gives you, um, you know, you can get a multi-year key or things like that. But if you're using it for non-commercial purposes and you only need a year at a time, you can get a free one from Komodo. I think that this, is, this story is not over yet. I think um, developers are going to get smarter about finding ways to encrypt easily applied encryption to to these applications. And especially with the news that's coming out lately, people are going to be more interested in just universally encrypting everything. I don't think we're there yet, but I do think this 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 is a an ongoing thing. So anyway, um, what about when you receive confidential information? See, I, I was talking earlier about, you know, the accountant that I'm sending stuff to. Well, people send me secret things all the time, too. And I always feel, you know, a burden when I receive that email. When someone sends me something with their social security number in it or or any kind of details that I'm sure they wouldn't want published, um, you, you do have an obligation to try and, and secure that data. Part of it's just being security conscious with your computer, having, you know, having a file vault installed and, and doing other things. But do you take any additional steps to protect that information when you receive it? I mean, one of the things I may do is just delete it. If I just need to get something out of it, then I delete it and I delete the email too. Yeah, I agree. But sometimes you need to be careful because you may not be aware of what data retention policies are um, in on the corporate level. I mean, you certainly can control those on your individual machines, but you know, I think in our firm, I, I think even if I delete a message from my individual machine, that can still be recovered by, our admins. Yeah. So well, keep in mind, it, it may not be gone. I'm not sure I have the answer for this, but it's something you want to be aware of. And when someone sends you an email with confidential information attached, you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. Um, okay. One of the things I do is I, I thought will, you were going to give us all these great answers and now you're just have made well, me well, paranoid. That, that one, I don't have a simple answer because like you said, you don't always control all the places it goes in. I mean, you can also control it with telling people, please don't send me that. <laughs> you know, you don't, you know, you want to educate the people you're corresponding with on the same level that you are uh, being conservative about sending things over email. Um, deleting the email message, I think, makes a lot of sense if, if you just need temporary access to that information. Um, if it's something you need long term, uh, saving the PDF to some place more secure and out of your email database and deleting the message also makes a lot of sense. 
yeah, that those are the answers I have for that one. Well, uh, I think I think one of the keys is easily is you know at, at least to the extent you can getting it out of your email because we keep our email on these little mobile devices that we put in our pockets and travel with, and that is just you know I explained to my law partners why it was so important that if nothing else, we have passcode locks on our phone and that they had to set up Find My iPhone on their phone so that we could erase these phones. And they're like, well, why? I don't have anything on there. And I'm like, really? You don't have anything on there? Let's just look at the emails you received today. And let's look at the attachments to those emails. And let's look at what's in those emails. And now let me look at your phone and show you how I can pull up all that information. And, yeah, if you, and that if scared you, them. If you really want to get scared, uh, go in Apple Mail or Gmail or whatever mail application you're using, go in the search bar and type password. Yeah. You know, for any message that contains the word password. And you, you've got this harrowing list of services and passwords that are showing up in your email database. In fact, I've got an OmniFocus task every six months. I go through and I do that search and I, you know, find and destroy emails that include passwords. I'm also very conscious of when they come in of deleting them. Well, I mean, there's, a lot, go ahead. Sorry. there's a lot of good words you could search in mail to find things you want to deal with, but password is a really, is a, is one of my favorites. And I also on the front end, try to be very conscious of when a service auto signs me up and creates a username and password for me, I immediately change it. Yeah. And they're better at it. It used to be that they would just like, if you had, if you forgot your password, they'd send you an email with your password in it. And now you get a link to to reset your password. So pe- people are waking up as to these risks. But but go ahead and search your email database for the word password. And I bet you'll find a few things in there you don't want there anymore. So another big area we get a lot of emails about is networking security, home networks away and things like that. So I want to talk about that. But before we do, um, David, why don't you tell us a little bit more about 1Password version 4? Yeah, so I'm I'm like Katie. I'm really digging the new version. I've been using it as well. Um, one of the things I like about 1Password, and I don't think we really talk about this much, is the ability to add um, personal data in there. It's not just an application that creates and stores passwords. It also stores data, and I've talked about that in respect to the secure notes, but it's also got these great fields, and I have to type in my password now, Katie, because we've been talking too long. See, my auto lock kicked in. Now we have to wait for you to type in a big, long, massive password. Yeah, it is. And I'm nervous. So I'm. You're you're quietly typing in with your keys so that people don't try to decipher what that master password is based on your key clicks on the on the podcast. And I'm in. There you go. So so anyway, when you go to add uh, information like there's an identity button there and you can save your identity with your address, which is great when you're on a website or whatever. But there's a whole bunch of those, and they've added new ones. Like they've got a bank account, and the bank account identity has the kinds of data that you would need with a bank account, including the phone number, the account number, the branch, things like that. They've got ones for database logins, driver's licenses, membership cards, like if you're a Costco member. It's got the right fields in there. So you start filling these out appropriately, and it's really nice and convenient. They've got uh, got one for an outdoor license, so my fishing license is in there. Um, passports. Now, I think some of these are new. Reward program. I don't think yeah, that one's those are new. That one's new. Uh, social security number. So I've always been putting social security numbers in uh, secure notes. I'm going to move them over to these identities now. Um, and a wireless router, which makes a lot of sense too. In fact, 
one of the things we're going to talk about later in the show is is wireless. And I have a list of passwords for all of my haunts with wireless routers, even just like family members, because whenever I ask them for their wireless, they can't find it. And sometimes now it's got to the point they call me to get their own wireless password. <laughs> yeah. Um, so well, and, and you can type in all that information because, like me, you're probably the IT admin for a lot of your family members. So you can type in, okay, well, they've got a D-link, this and this. And so this is how you get to the admin one page. And this is what their admin username is. And this is what the admin password is. And this is how you get to manage that. And you can type in all of that and save it in one password. And then when you go to their house and have to change something, you've got yeah. it. Yeah, so so one password does more than just create and fill in passwords. It also it just gives you a secure bank of information behind a separate password. And that is really golden. It, it not only is that helpful, you know, particularly helpful on these mobile devices, but it's also great on your Mac. If someone sits down at my computer when I'm not here, they're not going to get into this information without this one password. And these guys have been working on this for years and it shows it. They've sweated every little detail. And 1Password 4 is a culmination of that. So I, I really like that. Um, I like the way you can share it uh, encrypted uh, via iMessage and email. So uh, solving the problem with that I had with Daisy a few days ago, I should have done it that way. Um, uh, they've got better sorting now with the new version. That, you know, they've really just looked top to bottom on this application and rebuilt it. I uh, I started using the beta. I don't know three or four. Was about three or four weeks ago now. And I have not had any problems with it. It's rock solid. And and at the time you're listening to this, you're probably going to be able to just go get it right then. Yeah. And even if you can't, go pick up version 3 in the Mac App Store and you know you've got a free upgrade to version 4 when yeah. it does come out very shortly. Yeah. I'm, re- I'm really happy with this new version. It's got a bunch of the other features that you know we've seen in prior versions. You can tag uh, passwords and items. You can have folders so you can collect things related to work in one folder and home in another. Um, they, they've got a way to do a security audit in this now where you push a button and it finds every password that is weak in your in your library. So you can go fix those. It also will search for passwords that are over three years old or passwords that are one to three years old or six to 12 months. So like I should be running this. In fact, you know, like the reason I couldn't get in my cable modem, I look at this Cox uh, password here and here it is. It's over three years under this filter. So I've got to fix some of these things. Did I just tell everybody my cable provider? Oh, well. Yeah, I don't think that's going to hurt you. Um, the uh, So anyway, it's a great application. Version 4 shows the love and attention that these guys have been putting in the stuff since the beginning. And, you know, it's remarkable to me how many of the little problems of security I have that are solved by owning the single application. So so everybody, go check it out. Tell them you heard about it from us. Um, if you haven't bought it yet, go get it from the Mac App Store right now and start having more secure passwords and data right now. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about wireless networking and home security. Okay. Well, the that, first thing I just shared in the ad spot is make a list of all the Wi-Fi passwords for everybody around you. Yes. And all the all the Wi-Fi networks that you administer. Yeah. So the, probably the easiest thing that everybody must be doing is use a, a password on your network. I use WPA2 and uh, use a good, strong password. Well, isn't WPA2 the best of the common uh one's available right now. Right, yeah, for now. I mean, if you're listening to this show a year or two later, there may be something new out there, but for now. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, uh, Katie, you hide the network identification, the SSID. I do. And we're going to have a lot of people. I, I got a lot of flack on Twitter when I revealed this. But um, let me explain why. Uh, well, pe- let's back up even further. Okay, okay. What is an SSID? An SSID is the name of your network. So, uh, you know, you might your network might be named SuperSparks or something like that. Sparmerica. 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 Okay, there you go. Yeah. So whatever your network name is, you know, whenever you go somewhere, you see 40 different Wi-Fi networks pop up, and how do you know which one to join? So I hide the SSID of my primary network because I run two networks at my house. I run my network and I run a guest network. And we'll talk a little bit more about guest networks later. People used to hide the SSIDs of their network as an additional layer of security. And I think it's very questionable now whether that actually gives you an additional layer of security because it's not really hidden very well. And anybody with a monochrome of tech sense is going to be able to see that you've hidden your SSID. It's uh, okay, not so hard. Let, let me jump in there for a minute. There, there was a recent controversy with Google and Chrome where there's a website you can go on on a computer that has Chrome installed. There's a URL that essentially exposes all of your Chrome passwords, Chrome stored passwords. And everybody went nuts about this. And Google said, hey, you know what? This stuff is really easy to get to, even if we pretend it's secure. So we're not going to do anything to hide it. And I I disagree with that because I think that that's true if you're a nerd. But there's a lot of people out there who aren't nerds but are also no good scoundrels. And they're not going to know how to do that stuff. So why not put a little security in and and with an S, hiding the SSID, some people aren't going to know how to find it. So I think there is a certain level of security for what you're saying. Well, it's just, you know, people are going to go after the low-hanging fruit. And perhaps that's one more thing that doesn't make me the low-hanging fruit. But I, I do not for a minute think that I can avoid using a good, strong WPA2 password by having my SSID secured, hidden. Okay. The reason that I hide my SSID, like I said, is because I have two networks. And I just it's, – it's mainly because I'm a pain – I don't want the confusion. When people come to my house, I want them to see one network and be able to join that network. And I just don't want to have the conversation about why do you have two networks? Why can't I get on this network but not that network? And I just don't want to say because I have all my stuff on my network and I don't want you on my network because I don't really know that I trust you. Wow. Sorry. Straight just, up. So you see, Straight you see, this, this is better. This prevents me from being rude by just so, hiding it. So I, you know, the way I, I guess I'm not that secure at home. So I have a single network and I have a simple password that I can tell you and you can type in. It's not a one password style super password. And the reason I do that is because I have a lot of family and friends that are over and we're all nerds and we want to get access to the internet. And I freely give it away to friends who come in the house. So, but I do too. You, you don't have a guest network for this? Nope. Nope. Just one network. Please email David. So, but yeah. why? Because I I do this. I have a guest network. I have my network that all of my stuff is on behind a, a strong password. I have a guest network that also has WPA two password, but it has a more simple password that is in no way associated a password that I could give to somebody that is in no way associated with any of my other passwords. That's easy to remember and easy for them to type in. The um the AirPlay. Last time I tried that, I wasn't able to get people. And one of the things we often do is we share to the Apple TV. We did a show that, on Apple that TV. Makes sense. Didn't we? That makes sense. And the um, so 
there'll be uh, friends' iPhones in the house that'll be playing video, and the Apple TV is on the network. And when I started putting up separate networks, I was running into walls with it. So I just said, okay, just one network. Well, I I have a similar wall, and that is um, the problem that I've run into. I, that makes perfect sense now because you're right. You we had to make this decision at the office of what network do we put our Apple TV on because we have a a private network for the um, staff and attorneys at the office, a Wi-Fi network, and then we have a public network. And do we put our Apple TV on the public network so that people who are given presentations can airplay to it, or do we put it on the private network? And we went. That's back easy. And forth. Just just the private network. We put on the private network and then we had a cable that people can plug into. Yeah. So um, the problem that I, I've run into with my um, my public network at home, my guest network at home, is that commonly when I have guests, they'll sometimes need to print things, particularly boarding passes. Because our airport here is a little small and doesn't yet do the digital boarding pass thing. I mean, I guess you can always print at the terminal. But I've had guests here who have said, hey, can I, can I print this? And I, ca- I cannot figure out how to give a guest a printer access to a printer that's on my network. So if anybody okay. has a solution to that, email me. What about an AirPrint printer? Don't those work over, they don't work over Wi-Fi, do they? Mm, I think they are tied to a, a specific network. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know what? You're right. They are. They are. Okay. Well. So that's my issue. The, the other thing I want to point out is you've got a lot of other stuff on your network. So you want to be mindful of network printers, network hard drives. Uh, I, I was kind of looking at washers and dryers. Did you know that they have Wi-Fi enabled washer and dryers now? They have Wi-Fi enabled everything. But why do you need a Wi-Fi enabled washer and dryer? It would it would like ping you when your laundry was done. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you want to be mindful of where those things are, what network they're connected to, and what they're broadcasting. Because you want to make sure that they're locked down and that they're on your networks. Case in point, my neighbors recently got one of those fancy wireless printers, and it was just wide open. I was contemplating yeah. printing to it, like something like "Help, help! I'm stuck in the printer." Yeah, send a message. Well, I, I have a I have a scale that's on my Wi-Fi network. So, <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, I, that you need to lock down. I, I can't complain, you know. But well, one thing to be aware of with those devices, though, is check their their network speed because a lot of times the the Wi-Fi and those things are slow and it may drag down your network. So, you know, adding a Wi-Fi enabled, you know, blow dryer might be great, but maybe it's at G <laughs> speed and all of a sudden you've got, you know, you've got your whole network running slower. So be careful of that stuff. Okay. That's really not a security problem, is it? Um, no. But anyway, yeah, I, I agree with you, Katie. You should have a security on your home network. I, I am not, I don't use a real strong password. I use one network and I'm, I'm pretty trusting. I have what I call the non-functional password. If somebody comes over who I don't really know that well and they want the password, I give them a password that doesn't work. I'm like, ah, oh, there must be something wrong with it. I'll have to figure it out. That's interesting. Okay. Isn't that weird? I'm such a weirdo. Well, anyway. So why don't, why don't, okay. Or, or you could just set up a guest network and give them access to that. Network. Yeah, I guess, I guess I, I should probably set one up, but you know, the fact is, you know, you do it with one click in the airport settings. I, I know that, but also I can't think of a time that really I've locked anybody out of our network with the people who come to my house. I love and I trust them. And, and we really have a good time with that Apple TV sitting around and sharing, you know, their vacation photos and our vacation photos. And I don't know, our house, is a, is, is a one nonstop party. What can I say? You've got to come over to the Sparks house sometime, Katie. 
Apparently. We'll treat you right. And I'll and I'll get a non-functioning password. No, you'll get you'll get on the network. You're in so the So if all of a sudden trust. David says, "Hmm, something's not quite working with the network. I got to go check it out." I'll know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, what about Wi-Fi when you're away? Um, I use a VPN. I like Cloak. I sp- yeah. I spend 2 bucks a month and that yeah, solves so, my problem. And we covered that in great detail in the last show. Yeah, and and you just your solution to that is you use LTE. Yeah, I just use my data plan. The other thing you need, you can do, though, and you should do, is when you're away from your, your home network, you really need to shut down if you have any active sharing services. You need to make sure that file sharing is turned off. You probably want to turn off iTunes and iPhoto sharing. <laughs> go, go, go to Macworld and, and turn off uh, and turn on iTunes and see what happens. It's hysterical. Yeah, it's great. It's great. You sit in a hotel anywhere near Macworld, during Macworld, and there's about 15 different iTunes libraries available for you. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of ways you can do that. Um, probably the easiest way to do it, though, is to automate it. And there are a couple of tools that you can use for that. Um, you can set up some keyboard maestro actions to specifically turn off those services when you are on non-friendly networks. But probably the easier way to do that thing specifically is using an application called Control Plane. Yeah, so Control Plane observes where you're at you are at based on the wireless network, and it will make changes to your computer settings on that basis. Pretty clever. Is that how you do it with Control Plane? or No, Keyboard Maestro. Okay. All right. So I think that's about it for networking. What about just general securing your data, just data that you've got on drive somewhere? Yeah, so you know we've talked about encrypting your drive with File Vault, which we I, I think we gave that a lot of treatment in 148, and we've also talked about it in prior episodes. Now it's really great. Turn it on. That's the short story. Um, but you still have data on your computer once they're in. So uh, if your laptop is sitting on your desk and someone walks up to it and starts looking around the finder, what are they going to find? Uh, if you've got something in there that's really important that nobody else sees, um, the Mac has a built-in mechanism this for this called the sparse image. And you do it in the disk utility. So if you go in um, Spotlight and search out disk utility, there's there's a method in there to create a sparse disk image. This is really hard to explain how to do over an audio podcast. I did actually a screencast on it in um, Paperless. So if you're a Paperless owner, you already know how. Um, but I guess the short version is you can create a little image on your hard drive that the computer treats as in in essence as a separate disk drive. And you can have the Mac operating system encrypt that with 128 or 256 encryption, which means that people aren't going to get access to that without that magic password. And it opens as a finder window or as a folder. I guess it looks like a folder is the best analogy. And you can drag your secret documents into there and put the Death Star plans, all that stuff. Then you eject that drive. So that's the part where it feels like a drive. You you press the eject button and it locks it up and nobody can get in there. If you double click it, then it's going to ask you for the password to get access again. So that's a way on your Mac to secure documents. Um, like I said, it's not really easy to explain how to do it. Another way to do it is, and this I guess this really isn't an ad spot, but but Agile also makes a product called Knox that simplifies this in terms of the user interface. They kind of help you make these sparse images and it puts them in your menu bar so you can get to them very quickly and does a couple other things that are great. But if you want the real simple way, just go buy Knox from Agile. But you can also just create it in the disk utility and go look up on the internet. I think I even did a tutorial on it at some point at Max Sparky, but 
It's definitely the paperless screencast. I remember finishing that saying, I finally found the way to explain how to do this. <laughs> and, and it's a screencast. But uh, so go check that out and and set up a sparse image. So why is it useful? You can put stuff in there that other people can't see once you eject it. And you can do other things with it. You don't have to just keep it on your Mac. You can put it up on Dropbox. Like, for instance, let's say you want to store tax returns on Dropbox and you don't feel comfortable putting up there as naked PDFs. You could um, wrap them all up in a sparse image with its own password, stick it up there, and it would be just fine. If someone gets it down, they're still going to need the password to get into it. Make sense? It does. It makes sense to put it on a thumb drive. Like if you have a bunch, like your, let's say your one password uh, text export, you just export everything to te- a big text file in one password. You could lock it up into a sparse image and then put it on your thumb drive and then it'd be a lot safer. Um, what are the downsides of it, Katie? Well, the downsides is that if you lose it, it's gone. It's all one together and it's gone. If it gets corrupted, it's gone. So you want to definitely make sure that you have a backup. And this is probably something that you want to make sure you have a couple of incremental backups of because it's one of those things that if it got corrupted, you want to make sure that you don't, you know, write over your good backups. Yeah. And it's a digital file. So you could make copies of it. If you if you finish it, you could have a couple copies of it or or make separate ones. Like on our, um, I've got one on our Drobo, our family network Drobo, that's got a bunch of stuff in there. And then I've got one on the little, tough and tiny I carry around. So it's just a great way to have a secure way to store data. This is definitely something you want to check out if you're a Mac user. What about uh, for like thumb drives and USB? Is there anything else you do to solve the security problem there? Well, you can format them as encrypted disks using kind of that same file vault two technology. Now they do have to be formatted Apple, Apple um, Mac OS extended journal or Mac OS extended in order yeah. for you to do that initially. So this isn't good if you're doing cross-platform stuff, um, but that is a way to do that. Otherwise, encrypted disk image is the best way to go for that. I think it's a great idea encrypting those portable USB drives if you're just using Mac stuff. Yeah. Um, the other thing is keep in mind that, and, and I learned this from uh, Brad Chambers who did that Learning to Love Evernote series, um, you can store encrypted files in Evernote. Can you encrypt a PDF in, in Evernote? I don't see why not. How do you I mean, do you that? have to, you, you would put it in Evernote and then you'd have to drag it out of Evernote. You can't encrypt it and view it in Evernote. It would be more like a disk image in Evernote. Okay, I have it's to look into that. Treated. I have to look into that. We actually received a, an email question about that and I couldn't figure it out. So I'm going to look into that. Yeah. But I, I know you can put a secure disk image in Evernote and it just treats it as a secure disk image. Now you got to pull it in and pull it out, but you can do it. So, so how do you solve the problem? Do you just encrypt Evernote? I mean, my solution for a lot of this stuff, if I need to share it, is I make a secure disk image and put that on Dropbox. I do that as well, yes. Yeah. But now keep in mind, secure disk images really aren't cross-platform. So depending on who you need to secure this with, it may not be a good idea. Um, oh, you, you, know. could, you could do a you know a PGP encryption or something like that. And like the only people I share that stuff with is myself, my wife. It's just, you know, there's only a couple people I get that that get that stuff. Well, there you go then. Okay, let's talk about password problems. Hmm. Well, the yeah, big the, one. Let's start with the big one. Okay. The, the iTunes, iTunes password? Exactly. Get an okay. iPhone 5S. Problem <laughs> yeah. Move on. Well, Next, just, please. You know, send Katie $900. Send and, Katie $900, get an iPhone 5S, <laughs> and problem is solved. 
but I mean, this is always, and, and I was really glad to see Apple come out with this thumb ID solution because I always felt like this is one of the biggest holes in the Apple system is here's a password that you need to type on a tiny little keyboard, sometimes many times a day. And so it doesn't lend itself to the one password style secure password. And if someone gets that password, they can spend a lot of your money. So, and cause a lot of grief. So I always felt like they really let us down in terms of the way it works. Um, I don't have a great solution for this. We do have a, a phonetic password that we share in our family. That is our iTunes password. And it's not that short, but it's not as long as I'd like it to be. And every time the clocks change, we get a new one. That's the best I can do until these thumb drive, these thumb IDs get, you know, on the two year old phone. Yeah, and I will tell you that with the change in 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 one uh, password for going to iCloud Sync, my iTunes password is now, or my Apple ID, more more appropriately, is really the only password now that I keep outside of of one password. And I've had people ask me that because it, previously it was my Apple ID and my Dropbox password, but now yeah. it's it's really just my my Apple ID because I can get all of my passwords with my Apple ID now that one password has gone version four, which is why that's, that's so important to me. So and, you and just, just you just got to go ahead. I just jump in right there with one password four and the iCloud sync. I'm not having any problems at all. I can't tell any difference syncing my data through iCloud versus Dropbox. Yeah. Um, you just, it's, it is a pain, but it's, it's, you just, you just got to get a long, good password for your Apple ID knowing yeah. all of the important stuff that's associated with it. You know, while we're talking about these fingerprints, I could imagine a world where Apple would open that up a bit more. So as it exists, you use the the thumbprint to turn the phone on and get past the passcode and to confirm iTunes purchases. Um, I don't want developers getting access to, you know, the data about my thumb or however the algorithm is that that verifies me. But I'm not sure I wouldn't mind a yes or no answer. For instance, my banking application could just call the system and say, is it David? Please check his thumb. And if it and it says yes, then it lets me and I don't have to type in a password for my banking application or frankly, one password. If one password could do that. I agree Uh, with you. I don't think it's going to happen, at least not for a long time. But I do think we're going to get an intermediary step. See, I don't think we're going to get it this year. I think it's. I, I don't think it's beyond comprehension that it would happen next year. I. I would imagine Apple is going to spend a year just making sure it's secure and everything's working, but at some point they're going to let people just even just the you know, the binary yes or no is it him or not? You don't have to let them know anyway how any of this stuff works. Just call the system to say you know is it him? And I bet that that does show up in the system. It might, I or I could see Apple taking a more intermediary step and say, "Tell you what, we'll do. We'll let you integrate with our keychain, which you can unlock with your Touch ID." Yeah, we'll see. Hmm. I, I don't know. I I think you're right. I don't think it's going to happen in two weeks, but I do think that maybe next year we get that with iOS eight. At least I'm hoping. Don't hope so. don't kill my dreams, I, Katie. Okay, I won't. I, and I'm right there with you. I hope so too. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about two-factor authentication. We 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 discussed we discussed it in detail in the last show about how it works. It's basically a third wire to make sure that you have you know a phone and a password, or you know th- there's some second 
device or mechanism to allow you to make sure this is the right person to let them in. Um, I just wanted to ask you, where are you using it? Now that we know, go listen to show 148 if you don't really understand it. We've talked about it in depth. But at what point, Katie, are you using two-factor authentication now? Pretty much everywhere I can. So much so that the Google Authenticator app has now moved to my homepage. Okay. So I'm using it with um, multiple Gmail accounts. Using it with Twitter? Using it, um, no, but there was a reason why. I think I need to go look at that again. Yeah, I've run into trouble using it with Twitter. I turned it off. Yeah. Um, Dropbox, WordPress, Evernote. Yeah, it's really interesting to me, especially as we are diversifying our cloud assets to various people to see this this development. Are we going to get to a point where it's going to be on everything that's cloud-based? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, all right. Uh, that didn't really solve anybody's problem, but I thought it'd be nice to just kind of share how much we're using it. Well, I think the solving the problem is use it, find out about it. We talked about it in length and go explore it yeah. and use it. Um, oh, oh, and you know what? Apple. I turned on two-factor authentication with Apple. Let's not forget about that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, okay. What about where you're the custodian of passwords? And we talked about that a little bit in respect to Wi-Fi. Um, I've got multiple people that I help set up on iPhones and, and I keep their passwords because I know like uh, one of my sisters, she couldn't remember if I made her password password, she'd still forget it. So I, I just have a one password secure note with her name on it. That's got like a bunch of her stuff in it. And every time she calls me, I go to it. I, I do that, but I usually just set them up as individual passwords and one password. I don't know that any, you know, like I've got, my Apple ID, and then I've got one that says Mom's Apple ID. But yeah. maybe maybe your way's better, just because it wouldn't clutter up my logins. Well, also, just I know, like, some of these people, there's a lot of them. <laughs> and, oh, okay. and usually when they call me, they're going to need all of them. Uh, but, I, you know, so when you do that, do you feel, a, you know, you have to be careful. You have to use good practices. I mean, that, that makes it all the more important that I have a good password on my one password database or that I have my Mac encrypted and do all these other things. I feel like I'm kind of custodian of this information for people. I have to, I feel an extra burden. I don't want some people getting into my Mac and having not only my details, but somebody else's. Well, but, and here's the other thing that, that we need to talk about too, is, is how does that work in reverse? What if something happens to you? Yeah, didn't we cover that? I thought we talked Did about that. Did we cover that? that? Okay. Yeah. Just quickly, you know, my wife, you know, the the master one password password, again, is something that my wife knows and a couple other people know. And we also have a, a family nerd. Mine is Victor Cahiao, who used to do the um, typical Mac user podcast because he lives close. If I drop dead, he'll be over here and help Daisy figure out where all my de- my secrets are. Yeah, I, that's important. And I think... It, it, it's helpful to have a system where all of your stuff is in that. So it's kind of one-stop shopping. People can go one place and find all your stuff. That system needs to be secure. And then there needs to be a dedicated place, whether it's a person who knows the information or kind of this information is written out for them and put someplace like, you know, with your legal papers, your power of attorney, your will, whatever, that if somebody needs it, they can they can get it and they can pretty easily get access to your stuff. Okay, so that leads to the next question. If you need, like, the one password password is a good example. Maybe there's one that you can't just keep digitally. You need to write it down somewhere. How are you doing that? 
Um, I can't really think of an example off the top of my head, but I've got a, I, the ones that I do have written down are, um, you know, like in a, in a safe. Yeah. We, we've had several listeners write in and I thought the best solution I heard was safe deposit box. Somebody said, well, I have a free safe deposit box in my bank. So I just put it in there. And I like that idea the best. I mean, you could have a safe in your home, but the safes that most people put in their homes are pretty easily stolen and probably not that difficult to get open if somebody had some some time. Uh, I like the idea of a safe deposit box. But uh, what I did was also I made the one password password. It's long, but it's there. There's a story to it, I guess, for lack of a better term. And and um, Daisy will remember that. Okay. That was fun. I think that was good. Yeah, and I think we've answered a lot of the the common questions that that people have given us. Yeah, and I think we have a little bit of time for feedback, so let's let's hit a couple of them. Okay. Um the Apple TV show got a lot of feedback, and one of them was about using the um the no, you know, the uh, sound. And I had talked about, well, sometimes I show up and they have speakers and sometimes they don't. We had a teacher write to us. It was, who was it that wrote us? David. No, it was Diane. Oh, Diane. Okay. Yeah. So, so what she does, there's an app for the Mac called Boom, B-O-O-M. And it, it enhances the output of your audio on your Mac. It's a great app. I saw them at Macworld a few years ago. I was impressed. So she installed that on her laptop and she says it works just fine. She's a teacher. And when it has sound, it just comes out of her Mac. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. I had so many people write, I can't even begin to tell you how many write about the partitioning of my tough and tiny drive. And what I ended up doing is I dual partitioned it, part for Mac, part for PC. And a lot of people said, well, why don't you partition it XFAT? And I said, yeah, but I don't have access to a PC, so I can't do that. And then like a gazillion people wrote and said, Katie, you've been able to partition since 10.6 in XFAT. And I was like, wow, oops, my bad. Good job, Mac power user. Good job. I um we had another email about pairing the Apple TV with third party remotes. We never talked about that during the show. Yes, you can. So um you know there aren't a whole lot of controls on that Apple remote anyway, but you know, we had several people writing. David was one of them who said he uh, pairs his Apple TV with his Samsung TV remote and it allows him to have just one remote, which is a smart idea. Yeah, you know, well, we by the way, we uh, did this um, in our office, too, because we got uh, the remote that came with our TV had a couple of extra, you know, up, down, left, right buttons. And I realized that I could pair the Apple TV with the remote that came with our TV. And, it, you know, I had to change some of the buttons a little bit. Like the menu button couldn't be the menu button because it already had other functions, but it worked. And since we recorded that show, iOS 7 has gone live and they've done an update to the Apple TV. They've added iRadio and some other cool features. So go update your Apple TV. Um, George wrote in again, because we talked about airplay on a college campus can be difficult um, because, you know, depending on how you're connected, you're, you're could see potentially all of these devices because you're all on the same Wi-Fi network. And I talked about one possible solution is if you can, and some colleges may not allow it, is that, um, you know, kind of set up your own sub network on the college network. Um, and George was explaining, and I believe he works at a college as a, as an IT administrator, that the user base on these networks are so large that sometimes it has to balance the the sheer volume of devices across the network se- uh, segments, which limits what devices can see each other randomly. So sometimes you'll see some devices and sometimes you'll see others. And that's why you get a lot of wonkiness 
on large campuses like college campuses. Um, we had a message in from Tim who had a really cool pocket um, workflow. You know, we did that read it later show. So he's, he occasionally comes across images on the web that he wants to use as background images. And he has his Mac looking at a, um, a Dropbox folder for that. So he has a, a pocket rule where if he tags an image as background, it sends it to a particular folder on Dropbox, and then he has those show up as his background screen. I thought that was that was really a, a clever use I'd never thought of. Cool. Oh, another thing he says that we didn't mention about Pocket was it auto-sorts articles, images, and videos, and I agree. Uh, you know, since we did that show, Instapaper has come out with some new stuff. We talked about it on the show. We said we thought Instapaper wasn't done yet, and uh, I'm going to have to go look at that. Uh, for me, the if this, then that integration is so important, that's going to be something I look at to see if they improve that at all. We talked about security in the Mac Power Users 150 show, and we had people come on and talk about this elaborate security cam setup and I thought it was kind of cool, but a lot of people said, oh, that's a little intimidating. It's an interesting um, barrier to entry. Um, and Bob wrote in and talked about a solution from Netgear called ViewZone. And it's kind of an all-in-one box solution. It's got a base station that plugs into your router via Ethernet. And then you, it comes with multiple cameras in a kit, and you can add on cameras to it. And you can push, you know, put your cameras anywhere. Um, the batteries last about six months, so you don't have to worry about plugging these devices in and having, you know, cords around. And they've got a free service that allows two cameras, but for 50 bucks a year, you can get up to five cameras and cloud storage and video and all of these other features. So um, that if you're kind of looking for an all-in-one box solution, you may want to check out uh, ViewZone from Netgear. Um, we heard, uh, we did a show about Keyboard Maestro, and I heard from Dan from China, Dan wrote in. And he talked about using Keyboard Maestro to apply Lightroom adjustments to videos. See, I don't use Lightroom, so I didn't realize that. But apparently, you can automate all of your uh, filters and adjustments with a Keyboard Maestro action. Well, that was pretty smart. Um, I put out a call on one of the episodes for something that would do a, a better job of deleting duplicates from iPhoto. And um, Michael wrote in and talked about Duplicate Annihilator for iPhoto. That is not one that I personally use. Um, but that's one worth trying. I tried Gemini and it didn't do a very good job. I ended up with this weird situation where I had like 3000 duplicates from my Alaska trip because I had stuff auto importing from my Wi-Fi uh, iFi card, stuff auto importing from a Hazel rule, stuff that just came in directly off the camera card. It was a hot mess. But what I ultimately found that worked was an app called Photo Sweeper. It's available in the Mac App Store. There's a light version for like five bucks and the full version is 10 bucks. Just get the full version. And it was amazing. I cannot tell you how good of a job this did in finding duplicate photos, allowing you to select them and telling you the differences between them. And in some cases, if you wanted to, just auto-selecting the lower quality photo and deleting them. It, it saved me like four gigs from my iPhoto library. I just... Could not say enough good things about it. So Photo Sweeper in the Mac App Store or Duplicate Annihilator, as Michael points out. You know, the importance of having an application that can do that just go, reinforces the fact that I still think Apple has some ways to go in terms of photo management. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we need all these tools means that things aren't really working the way they should. Um, we heard from Sam, and uh, when we did the travel show, he had... I, I hadn't thought of this. Uh, he has 
is it panniers? Is that how you say the word? You know, those things they used to put on the back of a horse. Now he puts it on, you know, side of a bicycle. But he, he rides to work in a bicycle and he keeps uh, the uh, bags on the side from Eagle Creek. We talked about those. But what he does is he vacuum seals them. Uh, you know, I've always heard about that. I've never done that. Have you ever vacuum sealed when you traveled? No, I haven't. No, I want to check that out one of these days. That looks like the kind of thing I could get obsessive about. Uh, let's see. One of the things I was also complaining about is the one of the issues with File Vault 2 is that if you had it on a server, like my Mac Mini Home server, if you ever needed to restart just kind of for general maintenance or things like that, it was a little bit of a pain because you had to go get the keyboard and mouse because you couldn't remote access in or, or um, share the screen until you were through the first level of encryption. So if I wanted to restart my Mac once a week or so, wasn't just something that I could automate and do. Um, Tom wrote in and suggested the a fix to this when using File Vault 2 on a server is by partitioning the drive, where the boot partition doesn't use File Vault, which allows the system to run normally, but any sensitive data is stored on an encryption encrypted partition. So it's an, it's an idea. Um, we heard from Dan. I've talked a lot in the past about how I use dictation quite a bit. And Dan said, you know, what's your concerns about security and dictation? So uh, generally, I don't have many, to tell you the truth. So I use Dragon Dictate pri- primarily on my Mac, which does all the dictation on the Mac. It, uh, you know, it, it's not sending my my voice file up to the cloud and then interpreting it there and sending me text back. Dragon Dictate works locally. Uh, with With Mavericks, which is coming, uh, Apple's going to have a solution like that on the Mac as well. You know, because uh, traditionally, dictation on the Mac actually would send it up. On the iPad and iPhone, however, there's not enough, you know, horsepower in there to do that. So when you dictate, it sends the audio file up to the Apple servers, and they use an engine, which everybody speculates is is the same one on Dragon, to do the transcription on their cloud server and sends the text back to you. Um, I don't worry about it. I guess I just, you know, I, I don't think I dictate that much stuff that's that secret anyway. But, you know, I, I just don't consider that. a. I just don't worry about it. That's not really a very good solution on a security show, is it, Katie? Floyd? No, I just don't worry about it. That'd be fine. Yeah. No, so I, I do dictate uh, on iOS, and it does go up to the cloud, and the text does come back. But it just makes me so happy. And I'm so inept at typing on the iOS devices that it's so much faster. There's a future dictation show coming. Stay tuned. (laughs) All right. Well, we blew through quite a bit of feedback there. Yeah, we needed to. We've got a lot in here. Okay. Well, Well, as I mentioned, we do have a couple of iOS-specific shows coming soon, so stay tuned. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the next one. Yes. We are going to be talking about some of our favorite app updates for iOS 7. Yeah, there was there's a revolution when iOS 7 released for like 2 days I was in this like it was like Christmas all my favorite apps were getting you know rebuilt and redone. So we're going to talk about that. I think we're also in that show going to talk about some of our favorite little fiddly tips about iOS 7 things that kind of delight us. And so it'll be a good iOS 7 show. You can get some good practical tips and learn about some apps that you'll probably like. Sounds so we'll good. see we'll see you next week on that one. And thanks one password for exclusively sponsoring the show and letting us talk to you about all these great security tips. Yeah. And where can you find us, Katie? Well, you can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode, lovingly crafted by Mac Power users, Superfan JT, over at five by five TV slash MPU or at MacPowerUsers.com. 
You can find us on Twitter um, at Mac Power Users. Katie's at Katie Floyd. I'm at Mac Sparky. Go check out Katie's website. She's continuing to just crush it over there with some great content. And also MacSparky.com if you're really sad and lonely. <laughs> uh, and lastly, you can email us by sending an email to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. That's how we got a lot of the feedback that we shared with you today. And that email will go both to David and I, and maybe we'll reply or maybe we'll follow up on a future show. So we'll see you next week, everybody. All right. Stay safe out there. Bye-bye.